everybody. Welcome again. Welcome back. If uh, you're watching live, this is now the second live stream this week. As we talked yesterday about Mormonism, now discussing another very important, controversial, possibly difficult issue, the topic of abortion. You know, I don't know why you're here watching this. Maybe you are pro-life and you're trying to figure out how can I better defend and make a case for the unborn. Maybe you're pro-choice and you want to be able to interact and you want to offer your objections. And I love that. And I would encourage you to comment and I want to have those interactions. Or maybe you don't know where you stand on this issue. Maybe you are thinking about getting an abortion and you're coming here to YouTube to try to figure out some more information, trying to make this decision for yourself. And so whoever you are listening, watching, I appreciate that you are here. And hopefully this conversation can help you think more deeply about this topic, as well as be loving and kind and compassionate to those in which you are having this conversation with. And so joining me to have this conversation is Megan Alman. So Megan, first, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Ryan. Yeah, this is now the second time you've joined me. Um, the yeah. first time was four years ago, back in August of 2016. And wow. I always say that you are uh, my, the most gracious, uh, understanding guest I think I've ever had. I don't know if you remember why, what happened the first <laughs> I time. <laughs> I do. Yes. You can tell them if you want. Uh, yeah. So, well, first of all, I don't think I've ever had a guest agree to do an interview where it was like past midnight their time, but you wanted to have the conversation uh, and during the day didn't work. And so you were up past midnight. And then when I went to edit the interview, uh, the, it, it had not recorded. <laughs> So I went through this just dilemma of, do I tell her? Maybe she just won't notice it doesn't get posted. I don't know what to do. And finally, people told me you had to, you have to tell her. And so I contacted you about a day or two later and said, Megan, you stayed up till midnight. The interview didn't record. And you went, oh, good. I didn't like the way I said some things. Let's do it again. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> anyway, so awesome. Well, man, I so appreciate it. So anyways, you, uh, since 2009, you've been a speaker with the Life Training Institute, making uh, the case for the unborn, as well as you and your husband, Tripp, are, are directors of the, you know, Summit uh, programs in the semester. Uh, they're at Summit Ministries. So uh, can we maybe just start off here just a moment here at the beginning, kind of tell everybody, uh, again, I think your story is really cool of how you as a Christian kind of got into pro-life apologetics and why this is something that you have continued doing uh, over the last 10 plus years. Yeah, sure. Um, goodness, I, the short version. So um, <laughs> when I, I, I think the common denominator for me has always been people. I've always been interested in people. I've always wanted to tell their stories. I've always wanted to know their stories. Um, just people interest me. As simple as that. Um, and so coming out of college, I was a, a journalism major and I wrote stories about people. That's what I did. And I worked for a, a local newspaper in Georgia in the town where we were living after I got married and uh, did that for a handful of years. And I covered an event in our community um, that was a big, big deal in our community. Our local uh, pregnancy resource center would have an annual fundraising banquet, which is the way most pregnancy resource centers would raise kind of a, most of the funds for their entire year at this big event. So I wasn't even supposed to go to this event. The girl sitting next to me was supposed to go cover it and she went on a date. So she like left work early. My editor came out and said, hey, uh, here's a camera. Go cover this. There's free food. <laughs> That's all I got. So I went and um, the guy who was speaking that night is the president of Life Training Institute, Scott Klusendorf. Uh, so I heard his message. I was blown away, not only by the way he handled the issue of abortion. I would have called myself pro-life at the time, um, but I had never heard a case made for the pro-life view that, to which I could appeal, um, like science and philosophy. And we'll talk about some of that today. And so that was amazing. But the fact that you could talk about anything 
in this way. So the idea of apologetics was um, just, just just grabbed me, and and I couldn't I couldn't shake it. And so through a longer journey, um, I ended up going back to school with my husband's full support. He in fact he encouraged it. Um, and, uh, got a degree in Christian apologetics and I came full circle by working with Scott because number one, I knew about what was going on with abortion. I'd learned and I couldn't not do anything. I had to do something, uh, to, to make a difference. And so this is what I chose to do. And number two, when I do this work, because it ties into the question, most of all, what does it mean to be human? Um, and what does it mean to be human and valuable? Um, I get to talk about that, which I think is incredibly inspiring. So that's kind of how it came full circle. Summit was a part of that because I was on faculty. That's how we met yeah. uh, in California. Um, but then um, Trip actually, I guess, caught the bug. He came out here with me one <laughs> summer when I was on faculty here and then uh, didn't want to leave. So yeah. uh, there was a position that opened up with Summit Semester, which is our fall semester program. And, um, and here we are, our yeah. whole family. That's awesome. You know, and yeah, that's where we met. And it was awesome getting to meet you there. And I've just seen some of the work that, you know, even your husband Tripp is doing with uh, Summit Virtual. And uh, I had Jeff Myers on back when it was still kind of like, we're planning the virtual, but we're not sure if we're going to be able to do live in person. And turns out it went completely virtual, but it looks like Summit really has done a great job with that and seeing a lot of good things coming out of that. Um, I'm wondering, though, based on your story that you share of of you would consider yourself pro-life, you, you're a Christian, and then you go hear the case for life actually made um, and go, wow, I, I've never kind of heard it put this way in a way that I could use uh, in conversations. Would you say that's, I guess, normal with Christians uh, that, you know, there's a lot of pro-life people out there that want to stand up for pro-life, but don't really know how to articulate and defend uh, like a, a case for life? Yeah, I think I think that's what I run into quite often. Um, I think it's funny how the issue of abortion being a moral issue um, is treated so differently than other moral issues. And we can talk about that a little bit. But because of that, I think people get kind of frozen when it comes to either not knowing what to do, not really feeling like they can make a difference, mm-hmm. um, not knowing how to respond or feeling like they, they won't be confident to respond in the ways they ought to if they wanted to make a case for life. Um, and so when we go about and do our trainings, just to kind of see for those who are pro-life, because it does a number of things when we make a case, um, for those who are pro-life, for them to, to gain that kind of confidence, to actually walk out and be able to not shove things down people's throats or, or, or forcibly you know, push their views or anything like that, but just to be able to make an appeal and, and begin a discourse in a way that is reasonable, they're appealing yeah. to logic, it, that's the beauty of apologetics, um, but to be able to do so compassionately, um, it's, a, it's a big difference maker. And like you said, like it was for me. Um, yeah. And I've seen it do that for others, too. So, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's kind of what we want to do here in our conversation today is we want to kind of start off and try to help uh, kind of make the case for life. How do we use logic and, and reason and, and science and, and making the case for the unborn and, and then getting into kind of how to have those practical conversations? How does the fact that now this uh, is life and valuable life, uh, how then do we deal with some of the other cultural issues as well as some of maybe the objections that uh, pro-choice people might offer that we're going to see online? Yeah. So we're going to run through a couple of those. So I guess you're starting off. Um, for maybe, uh, yeah, why is this, um, I guess we kind of talked about this, but why is this important? And then how do we then go about uh, making a, a case for life? Is it a difficult yeah. thing to do? <laughs> 
Um, well, it, I mean, it is important. And people want to say that uh, abortion is such a complex issue that it's just hard to even start talking about it. Yeah. And I think they're correct in the sense that there are a lot of complex things that bump into the abortion issue. Um, certainly it is complex psychologically. You know, yeah. I, I work with women all the time who have walked through this. Um, and if, if there's one common denominator across the board for all of my friends and the people I've met from pro-choice to pro-life, it is that abortion causes an immense amount of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so th- there's that complex psychologically, emotionally, complex economically, complex politically, certainly in a year like this. I mean, we're seeing it um, just boil over in many ways. Um, but morally speaking, abortion is very, very simple. And in fact, when we're doing our case making, we want to get that clear. Because even though all the other things we're going to talk about today, Ryan, are important things, like like no one would deny that. Yeah. Um, we have to make careful distinctions where they need to be made. And the question is, what is this entity we're talking about? What yeah. is the unborn? We can talk about the importance of that question some more. But either abortion takes a human life or it doesn't. Yep. It either unjustly takes a human life or it doesn't. And so that's why it's so important. If it does unjustly take a human life, um, then this this thing that we're allowing in our nation, like w- without restriction um, in large part, um, would, would be something that is taking the lives of around 2,500 human beings every single business day. That's why it's important. Like we yeah. have to talk about this. And beyond that, you know, the additional, you could say, evils, if you will, that, that kind of come from that or the things that lead up to it, are those are part of the conversation as well. But when we're talking about abortion, we've got to narrow it down and get this right first. Yeah. And I think that's so important to point out here at the beginning. And I put it in the description below because this can become so so difficult with all of the different things that come in. And you see a lot of kind of, as you mentioned, the psychological responses um, when you see objections online, uh, but really does come down to one question is what is the unborn? And and I put the quote below and I don't have it right here in front of me, but from Greg Kokel, where he says, you know, if the unborn yeah. is not a valuable human being, then no justification for abortion is necessary. Uh, but if the unborn mm-hmm. is a valuable human being, then no justification for abortion is adequate. And that really is, right. I think, such a good question. And there's one of the objections we're going to look at um, to uh, that actually can grant or does grant that the unborn is uh, a human, but still tries to argue in favor of abortion. But uh, so kind of starting off here, and it looks like we might be having some issues with Skype. So hopefully you're still coming through uh, clear. But um, uh, how then can we then start and, and have this conversation showing that the unborn is human? What do we do? Well, let's start the conversation at that question and the importance of the what is the unborn question because it frames the conversation to come. And um, I'll, I'll borrow an illustration from Greg, the, our mutual friend. Um, he, he gives an illustration and says, what if you were standing at your kitchen sink? You're looking out the window on a beautiful day, kind of like this, because I'm in Colorado, so most days are very beautiful here, uh, washing dishes, which is not fun. But go, go with it. That's why I have a I dishwasher. I know. I actually don't mind because it kind of frees my mind up. But imagine you're up to your elbows in dish suds and your young son comes into the room behind your back. Five-year-old son. Um, and he says, Mom or Dad, can I kill this? Now, you can't see him. You're turned around. You're looking out the window and he's behind you. What will your answer be? And as Greg points out, you know, if, if your son is holding um, a, a venomous spider, like I, I would help my son kill that. Like we can talk about that objection if you want to, but it's fight or flight. I'm going to fight like that. I don't do bugs. Yep. 
<laughs> or arachnids or whatever. If it is the neighbor's dog, like, no, we're going to put the dog back, right? If it is his sister, then help us because we have a problem. My husband was a pastor for 10 years, so I don't even know where we'd go at this point for help. Um, but the point is the answer to what is it matters. In this conversation, the question is, can we kill the unborn? What is the unborn? Can we kill the unborn? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, sure, if the unborn are not human beings like you and I are, Ryan. Mm -hmm. So if it is true, as many will claim, that abortion is just a simple medical procedure, that having one is no different than extracting a tooth or clipping my fingernails even, and I have friends who, would, who claim that, um, then I shouldn't have a problem with it at all. And if that's the case, I agree with them. But if the unborn is human, that's different. So we have to begin with the question, what is the unborn, before we can even talk about whether or not we can kill them. Now, I haven't made a case for the pro-life view yet, but we've got to just focus on that question. And, and the fact, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, like, do you think that's a question that often gets missed? Like, that's what it seems like in my opinion, is that we talk about all these other things and we're making assumptions about that question. And even pro-lifers are making the assumption it is. They're, the pro-choicers may be making the assumption it's not a valuable human being. And then we talk past each other rather than going back to that first question. It gets it gets skipped all the time, yeah. and um, and I think of the justifications that I hear for abortion, and, and here's where I think that from where I'm from where I'm standing, and I you know I'm we can talk about the nature of you know moral reasoning and all that kind of stuff. I do believe this is an objectively true position. I think that pro life position is true apart from me and my desires or my my preferences. Um, but but because of that, I think I can look at this and go. I get, I get why people will struggle with, with this kind of thing because the justifications given for abortion all deal with incredibly important things. Um, I think about privacy. Abortion is an issue of privacy between a woman and her doctor, a woman and her God. Um, and you should, you know, I, I think it, it often goes, you shouldn't have any say as to what goes on in the privacy of the bedroom. Um, in fact, that is the legal justification under Roe v. Wade as it stands right now or the federal law. Um, I think that uh, I hear abortion is an issue of poverty which no one would say is, is a, a, a trivial issue, yeah. um, that, that this woman can't afford to feed another child. Uh, why would you force her to go through with the pregnancy? I think I hear that abortion is an issue um, for women that would enable them to pursue their education, their careers, their dreams. I hear that abortion prevents disabled children from being born who may suffer and we don't want children to suffer. No, of course we don't. Yeah. Um, abortion prevents unwanted children from doing I mean, the list keeps going and going and going. We even hear some more severe critiques that, that, that we can talk about as you want. But um, things like if, if we were to outlaw abortion, then women may be harmed uh, in seeking illegal abortions. Yeah. Or um, if we were to outlaw abortion, then or if we were to, yeah, to for, put laws against abortion, wouldn't we be enforcing religion? So, again, all of these things... Are, are important matters, but they skip that question. And I know they skip that question because I could sit my three-year-old nephew next to me, his name is AJ, and, and, and have him here and say, hey guys, what if I were to read that list back to you of, of justifications and tell you that those are reasons why I ought to be allowed to kill my nephew? People would think I had lost my mind. Mm -hmm. And if we just take a moment and look back through them, we don't kill three-year-olds in the name of privacy. And we don't kill three-year-olds in the name of um, poverty when they get expensive. I mean, teenagers are always shocked to hear. We don't kill them when they get expensive either. I have one, so I can say that <laughs> joking, jokingly, of course. Um, uh, we don't kill three-year-olds when they stand in the way of something that we want 
even our dreams. Yeah. We don't kill three-year-olds who are unwanted. We don't kill them when they're disabled. We don't have a problem with laws that make it harder to kill three-year-olds, even if someone may be harmed in the act of doing it. Um, and, and it's no more religious for me to say that AJ has value and can't be killed than to say that he doesn't have value. So at the end of the day, that question matters because if the unborn is human, like AJ is human, we have to start there. Um, and then we can look at these other things. Yeah. So what would you say then to, because I, I hear the objection uh, as I was thinking through this with my wife, we were even talking about this, of, yeah. of, of but we do in some states have physician-assisted suicide where someone is uh, either uh, in enough pain, uh, has a certain disease or cancer or something where we do assist in killing uh, people? How, how could that at least apply to a disabled child that is unborn? Um, in terms of the, like the, the morality behind that. Yes. So, well, if someone says, no, we, we, of... we do kill people. We do have physician assisted suicide where we are assisting people to kill themselves when they have a certain mm -hmm. disease, when they're in a certain amount of pain. Yeah. And well, we have abortion too. That's legal in our country right now. But um, the legal question and the moral question are different things. So I would be opposed to physician assisted suicide. Um, and the reason I'd be opposed is very similar to the reason I'm opposed to abortion, because both issues come back to particular views of what it means to be human. And I think that the view of what it means to be human that our culture champions right now, and, and I'm unapologetically a Christian, um, but, but so that's no secret. <laughs> um, but it's not the Christian view. Um, it's one that says that you, the real you, the real person, the real self is really your psyche or your feelings-based center, um, that you, Ryan, and, and I, Megan, are just the products of our uh, memories, our emotions, our thoughts, um, and that our body is somehow not really part of us, not an essential part of us. Our body is rather a, a machine that can be used to satisfy the true self. Uh, the formal term is body self dualism. I know you're familiar with it. I mean, you've had JP and different people on who, yeah. who could speak to it a lot better than I could. But that's that's what's going on here is a view lurking underneath that about what it means to be human that I would say is demonstrably false, because what we do to and with our body does affect us. Our bodies are essentially part of who we are. That's what the Christian view. Um, so, in in just in the same way that I would say body self dualism in large part is one factor, one of many, that drives abortion in our nation. It also drives things like a physician-assisted suicide. So is it related? Yes, but I believe both are wrong yeah. um, for, for those reasons. So That's good. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. so really quick, a, a question kind of came in on that, uh, kind of even before, again, we're making the case for life, but uh, Susan yeah. commented here and said, um, let's see, how would you respond to someone that tells you that we as Christians have a right to be pro-life, but we shouldn't take away someone, someone's legal right to believe and decide what they want? So they have the legal right. It's legal. Same with physician-assisted mm -hmm. suicide. Who are we as Christians to try and take away that legal right? Yeah, I think, okay, I gotcha. I think that what we're looking at here, because there's a question of morality and legality here, mm -hmm. and they're kind of crossing over. Um, what it sounds like to me, hi, Susan, by the way, <laughs> is um, <laughs> is that uh, we, we do live in a culture where something called moral relativism has taken over and that is the view that morality is not something that is real, that exists independently of us as individuals, but rather it's up to us as individuals to decide for ourselves. Um, it's a particular kind of moral relativism. So in other words, that's kind of what you're hearing there. Um, you can believe what you want. You yeah. can believe what's right and wrong for you, but you can't 
push that on other people, um, whether legally or morally. And I think there's some crossover there in this question. Um, what I find interesting with that is I, I don't think moral relativism really works all that well. In fact, I don't think it works out as all as far as a, a livable worldview. But um, when it comes to something like, gosh, we'll think about issues that are going on right now. Um, let me use this example. There is a tagline out there that fits right into this where people will say, if you don't like abortion, then don't have one. It fits right into this because it's saying, if you don't like it yourself, you don't have to have one, but don't force other people to make that choice or, or whatever, according to your beliefs. Francis Beckwith would say, what if that tagline read, oh, you don't like slavery, then don't own one. Or you don't like spousal abuse, then don't abuse your spouse. See, those are moral issues as well, but no one's treating those as if they are up to the individual to decide for him or herself. But they do that with abortion, which is why I said at the beginning, there's a lot surrounding abortion to where it's treated differently than other moral issues. And I know that there are reasons for that, but maybe that brings some clarity. So Susan, what I would say is that we are talking about um, a moral issue and morality, um, different conversation than we intended to get into here, Ryan, but morality I don't think is up to the individual to decide. I do think that there are real rights and wrongs that we are all beholden to. Um, and, I, and there are others who have made wonderful cases for this. I'd, I'd point to C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, who I think his writing is excellent uh, when it comes to uh, pointing out the similarities that are there. Um, and also the book by Greg Kokel, who we mentioned a few minutes ago, and Francis Beckwith, uh, Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. So yeah. um, maybe we can throw those up in the chat as well, Susan, so that that can help. But because that is the case, when we make a case for our pro-life views, I'm not talking about my preferences. Whether or not the unborn are being killed is not up to my preferences to tell you that that's happening. That's why we're going to make a case that appeals to science and philosophy, not religion per se, yeah. um, when we talk about our pro-life views. Um, so maybe as we go, some more clarity will come from that. Um, but I do want to point out that that's actually, it's actually quite a humble position to hold. Me saying in this culture, I think that I'm right about this and I think that those who disagree with me are wrong sounds very arrogant. And I know that because I, I live in the culture um, and, 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 I, and, I, and I, I hear the discourse that goes on. But what I'm actually saying is I hold an objective position here and I have evidence for the position that I hold. And I think that it is an excellent position based on the evidence. But because objective views are true independently of me, that means that objective um, conjectures or objective statements can be right or wrong, true or false. So I might be wrong about all of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I am, but I might be. That means that I submit that to the person I'm speaking to or to the audience I'm speaking to. But the way that discourse goes is that they have to then bring forward evidence from their view in order to have a real discourse about it. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about the evidence as we go here. Yeah, and I think that's so good because I think it's, you know, Frank Turek that says something. It's like, it's not just my morality, it's the morality. Right. We're, we're making an appeal and, and and, you know, it's people don't like to compare it to math because, well, that's, you know, it's it's moral truths. And so those, uh, you know, people have differing opinions on. But it's the same thing as, you know, two plus two is four. We're talking about as an objective fact of the yeah. reality. And so no one says, well, that's just your opinion you're trying to force on me. We realize it's everyone trying to discover truth. And you could get into scientific things we disagree about. But no one, again, is saying this is your opinion you're forcing on me. It's we're 
trying to figure out what is true about reality. Same thing yeah. is true here with morality. Our culture doesn't like to think about it in the same terms as a scientific or mathematical objective, objective truth. Uh, but that's that's kind of the point that we're making. And so let's then jump into uh, that case. Um, how do we go about then making uh, this case pointing to okay. this objective truth about the unborn? Sure. Uh, well, we left off with a question a few minutes ago. What is the unborn yeah. as the central most question of the debate? So it's only fair that we have an answer to that question. Yeah. Um, it is not a religious question. That's important to point out. I don't go to my Bible to find the answer to that question, although I do think the Bible is authoritative in, in terms of, in, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, in terms of the truths that it offers about, about the world. Um, it is a scientific question. So I would go to biology. And even more specifically, there is a branch of science dedicated to the study of embryos. It's called embryology. And embryology will tell you from the very beginning, that is at fertilization, the unborn is a living, distinct, whole human being. That's the breakdown. And we can break it down even a little more, Ryan. So I'm going to delve into a couple of those things. We know that the unborn is alive. Uh, it fits the definition of an organism, the same definition that I learned in seventh grade life science, where you had to check all the little boxes. The unborn undergoes cellular reproduction, so we know that it grows. Nobody's really arguing about that. Something is growing, yep. but dead things don't grow. Um, the unborn metabolizes because it turns food into energy. It responds to stimuli. Um, it even has been shown that embryos are excellent at repairing wounds, which is incredible to, to think. The science just gets wonderful if you really have time to delve in and think about it. So we know that the unborn is alive. We know that it is distinct. That is, it is a separate entity from its mother. It is not part of her body in the way that my arm, per se, you know, is part of my body. It is attached to its mother, yes, but it is not part of her. And we know that the unborn has its own unique genetic code that differs from its mother's and from its father's. In fact, if you allow me to get just a teensy bit technical, because this blows my mind, um, Maureen Kondik, Dr. Maureen Kondik is at the University of Utah, I believe. She's a neurobiologist. Um, and she's often asked this question because she is pro-life. Um, but as a scientist, how do you know when one cell becomes another kind of cell? Um, and so she answers the question. She's like, that's very easy. Across the board in biology, one of two things has to happen. Either that cell changes in uh, what it's made up of, its uh, material composition, right? If it changes in its material composition, it's a new cell. Or if it changes the way that it behaves, it's a new cell by definition. What she then goes on to point out when it comes to when does human life begin is that you can, dim, you can see it, you can, you can watch this happen. Um, she says that when sperm and egg meet within about 250 milliseconds, <laughs> right, the plasma membranes of those two cells begin to merge, meaning that that egg cell changes in its material composition. And what you have in that flash of a moment is a brand new kind of cell. It went from being an egg cell that could have survived about 24 hours in its environment to being a new kind of cell that can now survive 100 years, given medical technology, because it's a human being. Um, that's incredible. Within three minutes, it changes behavior. So that, yeah. that meets both qualifications, but it only needed to meet one. Finally, it is a whole human being, which was our third thing, living distinct and whole. Um, that sounds a little crazy, uh, but what we know about the unborn is it's not like my other cells. It's not like my skin cells that I can scratch off of my arm. Um, those cells are part of me, 
but they, they, that's just it. They contribute to the overall function of the organism that is me. The embryo is different from any of those cells. It's different from a sperm cell and an egg cell, both of which are very much alive, just like my skin cells that are about to die on my desk, right, that I just scratched off. But those cells being part of a larger organism differ from the embryo in that the embryo is a whole entity in and of itself. And its parts contribute to its overall function. And it goes on to do this remarkable thing. And one more thing here. We tend to think of embryos as things that are constructed. Um, this is important to point out on the on the point that it is whole. We tend to think of them as being constructed, which makes sense because we think of lots of things being constructed. We live in an industrial world um, where we build a lot of stuff. But that's why you hear that language. It's just a clump of cells or just a mass of tissue as if you could add more pieces and then the end product would be a baby. I mean, think about how we say reproduction. My grandmother would have said procreation. Yeah. Um, so I catch myself uh, I, saying that too. Right. Um, ideas have consequences, right, Ryan? And then my friend John Stone Street would say dangerous ideas have victims. Um, so we have to be careful even with our terminology. But the unborn does something that nothing constructed could ever do. And that is that you, Ryan, and everyone listening and myself, from the time we were embryos, we drove our own development from within. We're not constructed, we develop. And there's some just wonderful illustrations to help us understand that better. But um, those are kind of the breakdown of the science. Yeah, and I think that's, um, oh, this is still up here. Uh, I think that's so good to point out because um, you sometimes hear arguments, uh, and, and they're not maybe as, as popular, but you sometimes see arguments online where, you know, when you have just the sperm or just the egg, mm-hmm. that the men or women are creating mass genocide, you know, because, you yeah. know, every time an egg dies or sperm die, uh, you're killing children. And it's like, no, the sperm by itself, the egg by itself is not a, a child, that is not a distinct living whole human being, uh, that happens at conception when they unite. And so we're not talking about the same thing at that point. It's a good point. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's the science behind, behind the case. And then we have one more step, as you well know, um, in our, in our case making. And so maybe I'll walk through that unless you have anything else before that. No, absolutely. Yeah. Let's jump into that. Cool. Um, well, there are those who will concede your science Mm -hmm. and they'll say, we know that it's human, but it does differ from us in some way such that it's not a person like you and I are, or it's not a, a, a member of the human, the valuable human family, whatever the wording is. Um, we've, we've crossed over from science now to philosophy, and we're, we're asking the question, what is it that makes human beings valuable? Which, by the way, is a question that we see being asked all over right now with everything that's going on, my goodness. Um, but the question of human value, a philosophical question. In other words, what is it that would make some human beings just mere human beings while other human beings reach this status of valuable personhood? Yeah. What's the difference? Um, so philosophy offers us a couple of answers to the human value question. One is that you might be valuable like an instrument. Um, in other words, you uh, perform in a certain way or have a certain function. And some would call this functional value. I would call it instrumental, same mm-hmm. thing. Um, so there's a million and one types of answers to that in that in that category as to why human beings might be valuable. Stephen Schwartz, however, gave the second philosophical answer when he said that human beings are intrinsically valuable. He said, um, you know, it, by the way, intrinsic value just means you're valuable in light of the kind of you are. That's it. You matter because you're human. That's it. In fact, it's so simple. Most people just overlook that answer or dismiss yeah. it outright. But Schwartz said, no, this is this is the one that makes sense. 
because there's no relevant difference, not a difference that would matter enough between the embryos that we once were and the adults or young adults that we are today that would justify having killed us back then, but not now. Mm-hmm. Schwartz says any difference you point out is going to fall basically into four categories. And this is that infamous SLED acronym. He's the one who coined it originally. Um, and they, so SLED, the, the four differences that he points out, size, that embryos are smaller, level of development, they're less developed environment because they're located in a different place Mm -hmm. and degree of dependency because they're dependent on their mothers for survival. And Schwartz says those just don't work the way we need them to. In fact, if we look at any one of those, we have major problems. If size is the determining factor for value and embryos don't matter because they're tiny, then we've created a, a sliding scale on which some human beings matter more than others. In other words, larger human beings are going to matter more than those who, who are smaller than they are. My kids don't matter as much as we do, my, you know, Tripp and I, um, on, that, on, that, on that reasoning. Yeah. Um, gymnasts like myself, like we lose because <laughs> we're not <laughs> big people. Um, <laughs> I'm retired. But still, um, anyway, you see what I'm saying? Each yeah. of these creates this sliding scale. Level of development is a big, big one um, that the unborn are less developed, so they don't matter as much man, the, the things that come out of that are dangerous. And, and oftentimes on college campuses and in discourse that's more academic, it can sound very sophisticated. Um, we've got, gosh, Dr. Peter Singer, who would talk about sentience being the value-giving thing. Uh, we have, um, gosh, Michael Tooley, who talks about self-awareness kind of in a similar way and some of the arguments he makes. Um, David Boonin, who talks about a particular degree of organized cortical brain activity that would enable you to desire because of the way he, he grounds where rights come from. Um, these are all level of development arguments in some sense, and they create that sliding scale. The question is always, why is it that value giving trait and not something else, which is what philosophers would call the grounding question? And then how much of that trait is necessary before we have the person? Yeah. And, and I think you, yeah, and you, you often hear, I think, even Christians kind of almost accepting this in a way where uh, the, you'll hear the argument, well, the unborn doesn't have a heartbeat. And then we try to make the argument, no, this they do have a heartbeat. And it's like, but why is that the point that we're trying to argue? Or they, they don't feel pain. And therefore, when you have an abortion, the unborn is not feeling the pain. And then we go, no, they are feeling pain. It's like, why are we trying to argue this this point of they are feeling pain or they yeah. do have a heartbeat or they do have a nervous system rather than saying, yeah. no, they don't need those things. They're still a valuable human being. Yeah, at that point of their development, that, that, that none of us needed that. Yeah. Um, you're right. But we were still fully part of the human community because, and as we go through this, where you are in environment has no bearing on what you are. And then degree of dependency, again, a sliding scale. We have human beings who are dependent to numerous degrees on different things, whether you're on kidney treatment with dialysis or insulin because of diabetes, like my mom, um, or um, you know, there, there are just other things that weigh in. In fact, you could argue that we're all dependent on each other to some degree, which I think is kind of coming out with all of this isolation. Yeah. Um, so all that to say, these sliding scales give us no grounding for human equality. They create a value spectrum. They create societies where some human beings matter more than others. And God knows we are struggling with that right now. Abortion is another example of the same kind of thing that's resulting in all of this death. Um, and so intrinsic value is the only answer philosophically uh, that would provide an adequate and consistent grounding for human equality. In other words, you matter because you are human. Your value does not rest on traits, 
attributes, abilities, functions that are all accidental to who you are, yeah. not fundamentally part of who you are. So um, the pro-life case champions that. Yeah. And I think that that we, I mean, even the culture that we're in right now and the, in the, 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 the protests and the issues and everything that's going on right now, I think just speaks to this, yes. of that human beings are equal and you can't mistreat someone because of a skin color or because of a gender or because of a sex, you know, and, and so we recognize that even though we are different sizes and different races and different, you know, uh, genders and, and everything, uh, that there still is this equality among us. And I think that we can can use this so well to point to uh, this intrinsic value uh, that we have and why we have that. Yeah. We often tell students um, who, who learn and grasp this and kind of come to terms. I know that it's, it's a lot for a lot of people to think about. Um, I remember it being like a fire hose <laughs> mm -hmm. when I first heard this case. Um, but the students who kind of come to grasp this are the ones who are more courageous to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. But we also tell them like what an opportunity it is to tell others a better story about themselves because we live in such a functionally driven world where people are valued based on what they can do or how they can perform. Um, it's so refreshing, yeah. refreshing to go like, mm -mm, that's not what's ultimately true. And just, it does square with, with what scripture would say about, um, the Imago Dei. And yeah. so, uh, that just lends itself, of course, to the Christian worldview. But absolutely, uh, here really quickly, um, my dad posted a question. Um, if uh, oh, cool. yeah, Hi, Ryan, dad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dad, thanks for watching. Um, some pastors have embraced racial issues, marching in peaceful protests, confessing their silence or ignorance, you know, on the racial racial stuff, yet seem to be yeah. s silent on abortion. Any ideas why? And my, you know, I guess my first thought, really quick, is that you know this has been an issue for so long. I guess race has obviously too, but uh, it's almost like. It's like, oh, well, yeah, well, that's the abortion thing versus now the the, 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 the things in our culture right now are the race stuff. But, I, you know, is, yeah. do you have any other kind of ideas and why uh, churches maybe are more silent on this issue? Yeah, I, I mean, I have some ideas. I, um, I have a lot of grace to extend, but I also have a lot of encouragement that I want to give. I mean, I'm married to a, a pastor who's now working at Summit. And so um, I, I understand um, some of the pressures that pastors are under. Um, I think that with abortion, maybe what's different is the way that it's been branded in the culture as kind of the thing you don't touch hmm. or the thing that you don't want to mess with or the thing that because you have women in your churches, according to the numbers, um, large numbers of women in churches who have had abortions or who have been affected by it in some indirect way, um, and men, by the way, um, that, that there's a fear of causing further guilt or pain. Um, like I said, the common denominator is that abortion causes a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there are pastors who don't want to, to take that step or to cause further pain that oftentimes is one of the reasons, um, political pressures, certainly, um, I mean, it could be regional, it could be all kinds of things, but I think the encouragement I have to give is that, um, according to the gospel of Christ, which I do believe to be objectively true, mm -hmm. um, I believe there are excellent reasons for believing that Jesus really is who he says he is, or, or was who he says he is, um, that he did die and he did rise from the dead. And in doing so, um, he provided what we needed in every way. So that being said, I think that the gospel is the answer, um, and that by preaching the gospel boldly with the truth of a pro-life message, it's not like they're going, you're going to avoid the pain. The pain is already there. But I think that the gospel provides the kind of healing that we are all looking for. Um, I know there are those who are skeptical about that, and I'm, I get it. Um, but in, as far as in our churches, I think that the pro-life pastor can do both, mm. and he can do it well. Um, so 
I do think you have a point there with kind of the cultural moment. Um, people want to kind of be a part of the moment and, and go where, you know, the, where, where things are moving and, and where people are thinking. Um, but abortion, if we're consistent, uh, is kind of that watershed issue. Like yeah. we pointed out a minute ago, if, we, if we're going to get it right on this one, then maybe we're able to better see all these others. Um, but let's be consistent in the way that we're looking at it. I know this battlefield is a little bit different in terms of, um, I don't think any pro-choice people are out there like, I just, I think we should kill babies. Like, I don't think that's what it's about. Yeah. I think everyone at the table is there because they care for someone. Absolutely. Um, but we've got, we've got to reason through this well. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I just think back is, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the, the different states were passing different abortion laws and mm-hmm. it was the topic of everyone's conversation and it was yes. the center of the media. Um, you know, but I, again, as, as things shift, it's like, Hey, okay, now we have a new issue. Let's address this. And, you know, the, obviously it's good to have the people that we keep reminding of the issues that are staying there, uh, yes. as well as it's, it's hard not to kind of just kind of go along. Well, um, that's that. What Neil Postman, the amusing ourselves to death, still one of the greatest books I've ever yeah. read. Just how it's now this, now this, now yes. this. So it's always this shift in attention. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, um, hopefully, yeah. So those listening and those watching, hopefully this is a, a good kind of introduction, a, a foundation for why I make the case. And I want to get into now some some questions that came in as well as uh, some posts that I went through uh, Instagram and I went through Twitter to try to find uh, kind of different arguments that people make for uh, abortion to kind of respond to. So first question came in on Instagram for you, and it was, uh, if life begins at conception, what should Christians think about IVF? Oh, okay. We're going straight for <laughs> straight for the deeper questions, the bioethics. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that. Well, let me start by saying that there are a number of pro-life people who think differently about IVF. So I have to be fair. There is a spectrum even within the pro-life world of how people reason through it, um, and I can talk about that a bit. But when it comes to something like IVF, I think first of all, uh, children who were brought into the world through IVF um, are no different than you and I in terms of humanity or value. And I think oftentimes there's a confusion there that doesn't need to be there. Um, so that that would be the first most important thing I would have to say. Um, we don't know a lot about IVF long term, its effects or things, because the the first IVF baby is the same age as my husband. Hmm. Um, yeah, Louise Brown was born in 1978. Um, and there have been, you know, um, I think we're, I have to check my numbers, between one and a half, two million um, since, since that time. Okay. Um, but long-term things like we're still learning. So that's with bioethics. There's always that question just because we can, should we? So new. Um, but I think that what I'd have to address with IVF is to start with looking at infertility as a real issue. I think it is a real effect of the fall. And I think that it is, um, having not experienced myself, but only walked with friends who've experienced it. I think it is one of the most painful things that people walk through. Talk about things to pay attention to in our churches. Um, that being the case, I think that with, within some biblical boundaries, we should, um, if we can, use the tools that we create to help uh, repair the effects of the fall, and infertility being one of them, just as we would help someone with heart disease or kidney disease or a liver disorder. Um, and so there's that. God's common grace, we'll call that. Um, I think that as we're looking at IVF, some, some fence posts that I'd want to put up or in place to kind of keep us within, within boundaries would be things like, um, you know, if we're going to talk about creating children that we're not prepared to have, that's problematic. And because this is such an expensive therapy, I think oftentimes the pressure is to make as many embryos as we can for a better success rate. Yeah. But those are human beings. 
Um, so there's that warning. I think Christian couples should not be prepared to make more children than they're prepared to have. Yeah. Um, that's a hard thing. Um, I think that things like selective termination, which I would uh, uh, say is the same as abortion in that it's the intentional killing of a human embryo or human fetus, um, those are wrong. And, uh, and so, for that, would you say that would be the example of, again, in order to ha have a higher chance of success, you implant three embryos, uh, hoping that at least one of them catches and then, oh my goodness, two or all three of them ended up implanting mm -hmm. and now you selectively abort two so that you only have one baby. Is that? Yes, that is abortion. Yeah. That, that's what that is. Um, so if you uh, implant and, two, you should be willing to have twins if both of them. I think so. Were, yeah. I think so. Um, I think that even before implantation, there is selective termination that takes place. Oh, yeah. So we have to be careful, like pre-genetic screenings and things like that. Because yeah. um, these are human beings. They're not commodities. We're not, we're not talking about appliances or anything like that. We're talking about children. And when, I guess a couple of dangers I would throw out there when we go down the road of artificial reproductive technologies, which IVF is a prime example, is there's always a danger of thinking about children as things and that we can buy and sell, and, and that, that should be a warning. Um, and there is uh, the other thing is that we have to be careful not to make having a baby the most important. Like In other words, any, any technology... Uh, that we pursue that is driven by desperation, mm. I think is problematic. Um, I think there has to become a point where we have to go, God is still sovereign. And we don't understand the reasons, um, but, but this, this has to end where, it, where it's ended. Yeah. Um, in which case, I would not jump to going, why don't you just adopt? Um, because I think that we have to be more sensitive than that and more, and more wise than that. Although adoption is a real legitimate rescue mission for children who are already brought into the world, even embryos. Yeah who are already in the world. We were just uh, telling so, friends about that. My wife and I were just telling friends about that last night of uh, snowflake adoption, where you can adopt the embryos that people um, yeah, created and, and are yeah. not implanting. And so you can yeah. adopt them. It sounds like science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> kind of crazy. Like uh, potentially you could have a child who was created before you were born. Yeah. Um, one of these days. Anyway. Um, so there, that's a, that's a good way to begin thinking about IVF. Do I think it can be discounted? Um, I'm not ready to say that yet. I do have friends who would say it's wrong. Um, they're coming from looking at God's original design for sex and separating that unitive aspect of sex from the procreative aspect, mm -hmm. which is kind of like the Catholic reasoning on birth control, uh, but in a different direction. Yeah. And, um, I respect their position. I, I understand why they would, why, why they would go there. Um, and so I, I'm still thinking through some of it, but yeah. as of right now, I'm not ready to shift to that point. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, next kind of a comment more so uh, that came in. I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on this as well. It says, um, cool. I would like to, uh, Gina wrote in, uh, this is on YouTube uh, beforehand. I would like to see anyone who identifies as pro-life be proactive in owning that position and getting mm -hmm. involved in being part of a solution to this complex issue. Let's talk about practical attitudes for the church and give concrete suggestions to ensure that no woman ever feels like an abortion is her only option. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe what would be some encouragements as you've kind of been in this world of what can pro-lifers do to be proactive, to really own this and make yeah. a difference? Um, hey, Gina, by the way, thank you for your question. Um, yeah, I think that Gina is onto something. I, I don't look at this issue and go, oh, abortion is the only thing. In other words, there's nothing that led up to it. There's nothing that comes after. It's not It's not like I don't think any thinking person would say that. Mm -hmm. um, what I will say is, although I agree with what you said, um, I think that we can also focus on abortion as a premier issue because 
there's the intentional killing of human embryos and fetuses taking place. Um, so this is the intentional killing of innocent human beings. That would make it a priority as something to address. Now, if we're going to address it well, though, wholesale, I'm going to make arguments, of course, in, when I go and I talk about it, but I also see the need, and as do many who are actively doing this. So there's an assumption there that pro-lifers aren't involved in some way. I don't know. I don't think that's what Gina's trying to say, but yeah. um, often it is said that way, um, that there are sexual ethics issues coming in before, educational issues coming in beforehand, worldview issues that are there, and then after the fact as well, socioeconomic problems that we face, um, things that are going on in our society, the way our society views women and children wholesale, which is has certainly improved since the time of Susan B. Anthony, but it's, it's still problematic. Um, and so all of these things kind of do factor into the whole picture. I think we should focus on the wrongness of killing in the same way that, you know, I'm not going to trash the American Heart Association because they're not trying to cure cancer. Um, I'm grateful that they're working on heart disease. Um, but Gina's right to point out that pro-life principles point to a much broader uh, body of work and, and, and the duties that we need to do. I think we can start close to home. Um, I think we do what we can in our own communities. We can't all change the world overseas. Some of us can, but not all of us can. Um, I was just talking to a friend today who was uh, up in Alaska recently, and this is incredible. So maybe, Gina, this will be helpful to you because these are the stories not being told. Um, there is a pregnancy care center up in Alaska that she was interacting with and kind of uh, wanting to tell their story. And um, in addition to the pro-life work that they do, where they provide care for uh, expecting moms who are facing uh, maybe crisis pregnancies or didn't expect to be pregnant and um, were abortion-minded but wanted to, to have support in order to go ahead and have their children and chose life instead. In addition to that, they offer more than 400 parenting classes wow. because Alaska is highest in the country, according, you know, this is what we were discussing for a child abuse. Hmm. Um, this pregnancy care center has partnered with the courts and some parents are going through four or five years of classes in order for their children to, to be rehomed with them, to help families come back together and be healthy and whole. Um, above and beyond you know, the fact that beyond these classes, they're doing um, care for moms after the fact with uh, things that new moms would need. Um, so just things like that, that that aren't being told out there. But uh, Gina has an issue or, or a point in saying that there's a lot more to it than just this. However, the just this, the intentional taking of innocent lives is a big enough deal that I think it, the organizations that are addressing it head on are doing the right thing. Yeah, that's good. And I, again, I think... It's sometimes it's hard because I think, uh, uh, at least in my view, Christians um, are not necessarily out uh, publicly declaring all of the wonder thing, wonderful things that they're doing. And I've kind of had the objection raised against me of like, why do you just sit around arguing about God all the time? Why don't you actually do something good? And it's mm -hmm. like, dude, I don't want to sit here and toot my own horn. But if you realized, you know, uh, you know, if you if you look at, you know, and actually a friend jumped into that conversation. I was like, our church gives away like two million dollars a year that is given by the members to the church and the church is giving it away to help feed people. And it's like, you know, oftentimes it's not, uh, we're not tooting our own horn about all the wonderful things that we're doing, but Christians are doing incredible uh, things and coming alongside. Absolutely. I, think, I, I think so too. Could, yeah. could we do more on the whole? Like <laughs> we all can do more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of us are doing all we can. And, um, but anyway, at the end yeah. of the day, it's wrong to intentionally take human lives. Yeah. Um, and that's enough, yeah. but 
the wholesale picture is a problem and do we need healthier families and a healthier view of what sex is and um, a, a more beautiful picture of motherhood and all of it. Like, yes, desperately. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's good. Um, another question on uh, on YouTube, and I, I mentioned this tonight, so I pulled up uh, some facts for this. Uh, so how Dakota asks, how can I show IRS documentation that proves our tax money contributes to abortionists? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I actually went to Dakota. I went to uh, the Planned Parenthood website uh, and looked oh. at their 2019 annual uh, report. Uh, where I have a picture here I'm posting uh, up here. Uh, so it says uh, in the year ending uh, their fiscal years from uh, in June, uh, 18 to June of 19. And it says here that they received uh, $616.8 million in government reimbursements and grants. Uh, and then obviously there's other money you can see there in the chart that they get. Uh, but then again, again, you ask the question, where does the government get their money? It's taxing and income tax, um, mm-hmm. business taxes, and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, I think uh, Planned Parenthood's website uh, right here says they're getting over $600 million in the last year from the United States government. Um, so I think that would be a way from their own website, I guess. Yeah. Um, Dakota, Kudos though. To Dakota for yeah, homework. Yeah. So Dakota also uh, wrote in here this question says, Am I right for making the argument that God does not teach the prohibition in the Bible? From my perspective, we are told that, uh, are told and taught morals uh, and given commandments, but we are given free will and free choices, free and choices freely. My point is that God never says, I'm going to stop you if you try to do this. Rather, he says, this is good and this is bad. Do this, don't do that. If you do that bad thing, you'll have bad consequences. And I am the one who delegates what is and isn't bad. Hmm. So God kind of sets up this moral standard, but he's not necessarily, he gives us the free will to choose. Yeah. Uh, so there's not a prohibition where you can't do this maybe you shouldn't do this but I, I guess my question would be how is that different <laughs> um another like i'm thinking i think i'm imperfectly of course i'm thinking about being a parent um and the things that i tell my kids like when i say you shouldn't do this i really i really mean you are prohibited from doing this mm-hmm. um so i think there probably needs to if i could sit with dakota and like flesh this out some more there's some questions that i'd have for clarity um but yeah i think in terms of God's moral will, I mean, he, he did dictate because of who he is as creator and, and, and the standard of what is good. Um, you know, things that are good and things that are evil and things that are good are intrinsically good and things that are evil are intrinsically that. They're evil. Um, and we ought not do evil things. Um, yeah. And so him saying that, I would think, would equate in my mind to a prohibition. But if what she's saying is, does God like handcuff us to where we won't perform these things? Like, um, I, yeah, no, <laughs> um, which is what free will is, yeah. but that's not in any way a, an indication that we, then we're free to go ahead and pursue wrong things. I mean, that, that's where we come into views of morality yeah. that might differ a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, and I, th- but I think this question also kind of brings up something else is, is, uh, and then we'll get into the, the, the Twitter and Instagram posts. Um, cool. but, uh, Tim Barnett recently put out a, a video on his YouTube channel, Red Pen Logic, where it, he uh, posted the uh, someone who wrote, went on Twitter saying, Jesus never said anything about abortion. And I know wow. that, you know, at the very beginning, uh, you also said, you know, this is not just a Christian perspective. This is, I'm not just quoting Bible verses. I'm, I'm basing this on science and, and logic. And there's a good reason for that is, again, if you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, doesn't believe in the Bible, then mm-hmm. you don't have to argue for the Bible first and then that. You can just go straight to science, which people accept. But how would, uh, what does the Bible uh, have to say about this topic for the Christian who wants to look at this issue biblically? 
Yeah, for abortion. Yeah, so even similar to what Dakota said and why it came to mind is like, what are the the parameters that God has established that would apply to this topic? Yeah, I wish I I had, like I have whole like PDFs. No, I think that we can begin in Genesis chapter one, uh, when he, when we're, we're told that we are made bearing God's image. And like I said before, human beings are image bearers. That philosophical evidence for that would be the intrinsic value question that, that our value as it were, has been endowed to us because of the human nature that we all share from the moment we come into existence to the moment that we die. So though the Bible doesn't mention abortion, um, explicitly, I think implicitly, or, uh, you can you can infer from what you learn in the scriptures that abortion is wrong. It does uh, strictly talk about the the shedding of innocent blood in the book of Exodus, um, and that's echoed elsewhere. Um, it does talk about uh, image bearers both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus echoes the Old Testament teaching about um, the shedding of blood in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, I believe. Um, and so. We have different places there where if we look at the cumulative picture, mm-hmm. then we can infer that the taking of innocent human life is wrong. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, people talk about that a lot with the, to me, that's a strange objection. The Bible doesn't talk about abortion. Therefore, we shouldn't have a right or wrong for it. Like the Bible doesn't talk about drive-by shootings either. So, I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> we, we have to kind of imply or use our yeah. wisdom. No, absolutely. Happen. No, I think that's I so important. That to make fun of the, the question, I'm just that, that. Yeah. It's a good question, but it's, I, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it just what you point out is so important. Is it's not just what Jesus said. Is that he, as being uh, uh, giving authority to the Old Testament and the and the soon to be written New Testament, and we look at all of Scripture as being uh, God breathed and not just the words right. of Jesus. Uh, but even just as my church is is, is covering uh, going through the Book of Luke of looking at uh, when Mary was pregnant and and John the Baptist and Mar and, and Jesus were both uh, inside of. Um, mm-hmm inside of the womb and mm-hmm. uh, leaping for joy, being in the presence of Jesus and, and pointing to the filling of the Holy Spirit while still uh, being inside of the womb is so powerful. So uh, powerful. And so, the poetry of the Psalms also speaks to it as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. I hope you enjoyed the first part of my conversation with Megan Alman as we made the case for life and that it encouraged you to stand up for the unborn. In the next episode, we are going to respond to pro-choice arguments so that you are better prepared to respond to their objections. If you benefited from this episode today, I would love it if you shared it on social media, left a rating on your podcasting app, or even possibly left a review. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless. This is the Ryan Polly Podcast. Just